Welcome. Um, this is the first of the um, lower limb section. I thought I'd do an overview. Uh, because it's fairly short, we'll include, if there's time, some osteology. So we'll start with the osteology of the femur. Um, for those who are interested in making a contribution, if they can um, go to patron.podbean.com slash anatopod, I've included that on the uh, blurb on the site, uh, and we'd like to increase uh, contributions so that we can make this a better uh, program through this year. Um, I hope everyone is well and uh, we're going to start um, on the lower limb and I hope that everybody found the upper limb quiz pretty straightforward. I've had some feedback on that. We can make it a little bit more complicated perhaps for the lower limb. This particular one is just a really a kind of review um, <clears throat> or perhaps in it more correctly an overview. Um, now, similar to the upper limb, uh, we're starting, I think, with an overview that rehashes, to some extent, some aspects of the homology between the upper and lower limbs. So I'd recommend that perhaps you go over AUL1 to reassess this area for reinforcement. I mentioned that there is a bony homology, namely that there is the body of the scapula, which is akin really to the ilium of the innominate bone, the coracoid is the ischium, the precoracoid perhaps, which would represent then the pubis in that kind of homologous approach. The lower limb, of course, is also structured like the upper limb as a pelvic girdle, namely a connection to the axial skeleton. The neural development and the rotation as I've mentioned before, by 180 degrees of the lumbosacral plexus. We've actually discussed that, the back of the thigh and the leg representing, therefore, the anterior divisions of the ventral primary rami, the quadriceps and the front of the leg innervated by the posterior divisions of these lumboventral rami. And because of the way the upper and the lower limb buds are pulled out, there's then a separation of the dermatomal sites as well. So in the upper limb, the C5 to T1 part that covers the upper limb uh, separates off uh, from the um, cervical plexus and the chest. The same way the lower limb, that you've got the uh, L1 right down to S3, which then separates so that the perineum is then innervated between the front of the groin at L1 and the perineum itself from um, S234, and that's why you've got that separation of uh, cutaneous dermatomes. So it's a very similar kind of arrangement. As we've recalled, um, uh, as I've said before, the ventral primary rami uh, then control the uh, thigh and the leg, or the back of the thigh and the leg, and the quadriceps in the front of the leg are innervated by the posterior divisions of the lumbar ventral rami. So this explains the difference, in a sense, between myotomes and dermatomes in the upper limb. Hopefully you can remember that point. 
There are, of course, structural and some functional similarities between the thigh and the arm, or between the leg and the forearm, the tarsus and the carpus, the foot and the hand. And I've covered these at a bony level and in the various regions and compartments, although they'll become relevant in the lower limb. I'll go over these particular points as they appear again. The limb bud development about which we spoke creates a limb compartmentalization, therefore, with its compartmental neurovascular supply. Now, to drill down on this a little in the arm and thigh, there are, as I've already just mentioned, the limb girdle arrangement, the femoral articulation with the three bones, the ischium, the ilium and the pubis, or perhaps some people call it the ilium might be better, I think it's better uh, called the ilium, and the humerus with the two, the scapular body or scapula proper and its dorsal formation, and the coracoid, kind of like a ventral scapula. So there is that bony homology. The hip and shoulder behave similarly, but each is a kind of trade-off uh, of stability for flexibility. And the differential disposition of the femur to slope forwards, and in fact to be so medially rotated, also uh, additionally places the quadriceps group more anteriorly. There are, of course, flexor and extensor compartments of both the upper limb and the lower limb, but the ab, uh, uh, abductor aspect of the upper limb, that is the deltoid largely, has its equivalence, I think, perhaps as the gluteus maximus and that rather unique tensor fasciae latae in the lower limb. The short scapulars, the rotator cuff, carries out a kind of separate stability function and I suppose could in theory be likened to the gluteus medius and minimus and the short obturators in the lower limb. Now, I think the stricter sort of comparisons kind of end there. Uh, we have the adductor, adductor group of muscles in the lower limb. That's the, the magnus, the longus, the brevis, and also the gracilis and pectineus. And if we're to liken them anywhere... Uh, we can only sort of liken them to the coracobrachialis. The adductors also have a particular change of arrangement of the deep fascia of the lower limb, which I'll go into in the next podcast, so that the fascia has a kind of inward sleeve. It's a bit like someone placing their hand in a jacket pocket. That is to say that uh, medially the fascia is open rather than a closed sleeve. And I'd say that the adductor musculature is innervated by the anterior divisions of the lumbar plexus, the obturator nerve, whereas those muscles that adduct the upper limb are really uh, brought in as gyropes, the pectoralis major, which is innervated by the brachial plexus, the latissimus dorsi, which is innervated by the posterior divisions of the brachial plexus. So the kind of homology doesn't sit there. The axiohumeral arrangement here, of course, is entirely to, different to that of the lower limb, and there's no equivalent muscle like the adductor magnus, which is both part of the adductor and hamstring compartments. The interposition of the pubis-related adductors then straddles that two-compartment model that we see in the upper limb, and hence the fascia, some of the blood supply and the nerve supply sort of differs. There's some vascular similarity between the profunda femoris artery and the profunda brachii, 
along, as we know, with the superficial drainage and lymphatic drains. So I've already said the branches of the superficial femoral artery, which are the superficial epigastric, the superficial circumflex iliac, the superficial and deep external pudendal arteries, they all drain as their equivalent venous branches, they all drain to the long or great saphenous vein, as do the venous tributaries, which are unnamed, that represent the arterial equivalents to the thoracohumeral artery. That's the cat's pee all day or clavicular, pectoral, axillary and deltoid. And all of those venous tributaries also drain directly into the cephalic vein and not into the axillary vein. So there's some homology there. And that point's tremendously important in the lower limb in the Trendelenburg operation, which is saphenofemoral ligation, ligating the great saphenous vein at the saphenofemoral junction. You've got to pick up all of those individual tributaries because failure to pick up, for example, the deep external pudendal vein, which can come off the femoral vein in about 30% of cases, can be associated with some nasty recurrent vulval varices in females. And, of course, they're the commonest to develop varicose veins anyway. So uh, this becomes a very standardised operation based on its anatomy, the trendelenburg saphenofemoral ligation. We'll go into that a little bit more in the next podcast when we're talking about the saphenofemoral junction and some surgical aspects of it. Uh, Similarities, I think, are also evident in the vascular anastomoses. I think I've mentioned a bit about this before, but we'll uh, uh, clarify it a bit now. Around the shoulder, as we know, there's a natural collateral anastomosis between the branches of the first part of the subclavian artery and the third part of the axillary artery. If that area became occluded, there are natural collaterals that would open up. The dorsal scapular artery, which we've mentioned before, can be involved, as can the deep transverse cervical artery from the thyrocervical trunk and the first portion of the subclavian artery. And then there's this anastomosis with the circumflex scapular and subscapular anastomosis, a branch of the third portion of the axillary artery, around the vertebral border of the scapula. So if there's an occlusion between S1 and A3, the first portion of the subclavian artery, the third portion of the axillary artery, there's inbuilt collaterals to get around that problem. Now, likewise, in the lower limb, there's a natural collateral vascular anastomosis around the anterior superior iliac spine. Here there's a contribution from the superficial circumflex iliac, which, as we've said, is a femoral uh, branch, the deep circumflex iliac, which is one of the only two branches of the external iliac artery, the other, of course, being the inferior epigastric, and there's an ascending branch of the superior gluteal artery, which is a posterior divisional artery of the internal iliac, and also an iliac branch of posterior divisional artery uh, of the internal iliac, the so-called ileolumbar artery, uh, whose job it is to supply muscle and bone in the ileolumbar region, and also to supply the fifth spinal artery connection into the corda equina. So here in this circumstance, there are already natural collaterals that are in place if there's an external iliac or femoral artery occlusion, often in aorto-iliac disease, and we see these anterior superior iliac spine collaterals which widen out fairly obviously on a digital subtraction angiogram. 
That's, of course, the anatomical reason why. So they're naturally there, a little branch of the femoral artery, a little branch of the iliolumbar artery from the internal iliac, a little branch of the superior gluteal, again from the posterior division of the, ilio, uh, of the internal iliac, and a little branch from the external iliac artery. So they're all collaterals naturally going to the anterior superior spine. That's the lower limb homology. Now, I appreciate that apart from some of the neural homology as compartmental nerves that I've mentioned, that kind of there the real homology stops. The muscles of the lower limb have been borrowed, as it were, and their supply is kind of higher up in the lumbar plexus, for which there's no real upper limb equivalent. And I think one might think of the quadriceps and the triceps looking similar, but they're clearly not um, uh, homologous. Now, uh, when it comes to the leg and the forearm, uh, we've already looked at the pre-axial and post-axial bony homology. Of course, in knee, there's only pre-axial bony involvement and supination and pronation isn't possible. The ankle is a mortis stability joint, unlike the wrist. And one can imagine that the thumb muscles in their extensor compartment separateness and attachments to the terminal phalanx, the proximal phalanx, the base of the metacarpal, namely the extensor pollicis longus, the extensor pollicis brevis, and its accompanying abductor pollicis brevis are similar to the great toe in the sense of the extensor hallucis longus and extensor hallucis brevis. But there are differences here with the other muscle, the tibialis anterior, which would be an extensor muscle there, but that's got a somewhat different insertion to the base of the first metatarsal and the medial cuneiform. The origins of these comparative muscles are very different, and in fact, there the comparison ends. The extensor apparatus between the upper and the lower limbs, however, are fairly similar. The extensor digitorum or the extensor digitorum communis has a humeral origin, but the extensor digitorum longus in the human has descended in the lower limb down to a fibular origin. And in animals, it's actually femoral, so it's a, a bit different between animals and humans. I have described before briefly the movements of the ankle will be going into that at the appropriate podcast, but the relationship of the ankle and the wrist certainly has some biomechanical similarity. I and mean, although there are no lower limb equivalents of the radial extensors, the extensor carpi radialis longus and extensor carpi radialis brevis, they are mimicked in their action by the extensors in the lower limb that dorsiflex the ankle on either side. So you've got the tibialis anterior on the medial side that's an extensor uh, and an inverter of the foot and the peroneus or fibularis tertius on the other side, which is an extensor but an everter of the foot. The insertions of the muscles are actually very similar and that explains their movements better the extensor carpi radialis longus, if you'll recall, inserts into the base of the second metacarpal 
extensor carpi radialis brevis into the base of the third, and that's the extensor attachments which are virtually identical to the insertion on the flexor side of the flexor carpi radialis. So those muscles move together, either in extension or flexion respectively, to act together and to radially distract the hand. The arrangement is actually similar in the ankle where the tibialis anterior, which I've briefly mentioned, inserts into the first metatarsal and the medial cuneiform on the extensor surface of the foot and where the insertion of the peroneus longus, or it's now fibularis longus, inserts on the flexor side. Perhaps there's a little more deep flexor medial cuneiform insertion, a little less metatarsal insertion, but you get my point. And both muscles are therefore inverters of the foot, but the tibialis anterior dorsiflexes and the fibularis longus plantiflexes the foot. So even though these muscles kind of have differences in their homology, the biomechanics works similarly because of the way that the muscles are inserted into the same bones. And there are therefore some biomechanical similarities between the upper and lower limbs. And <coughs> they do both act in concert, as I've said there, to invert the foot, but one plantar flexes and one dorsiflexes. Got it? By the way, the origin of the adductor pollicis around the insertion of the extensor carpi radialis longus and the extensor carpi radialis brevis as a kind of crescentic origin is identical with the oblique head origin of the adductor haliasis around the insertion point of the fibularis longus, even though there are some other different aspects uh, in one taking origin from the capsules of the metacarpal uh, metatarsophalangeal joints and so on. We'll get into those in a little bit more detail at the relevant points, but again there is some similarity. The flexor symmetry is actually striking with the dual flexor digitorum superficialis and soleus, sort of both arches if you like in the upper and lower limbs respectively from taking origin from both bones as an arch under which runs the posterior tibial artery in the lower limb and the median, and ulnar, uh, median nerve and ulnar arteries in the, in the upper limb. So the continuation of the soleus in the foot is the flexor digitorum brevis. The vestigial muscles, the palmaris longus and the plantaris actually look similar. But I've discussed these before. They're phylogenetically different and we know from cadaver incident studies, they're not really interrelated. Um, the way the anterior tibial artery and the posterior interosseous artery enter the compartments are also pretty similar. Uh, the anterior tibial artery running over the top of the interosseous membrane and the posterior interosseous artery sort of doing a similar kind of thing. Uh, the perineal nerve, the way that winds around the fibula, is sort of a bit similar to the way the posterior interosseous nerve makes its way around the radius. There are some hand-foot similarities also, I think, as we know. The foot as a stance structure has shifted the axis to the second metatarsal, whilst the hand maintains its middle finger axis, so there are differences. And that affects also things 
like the lumbricals and the way their interossei function towards or away from a particular axial digit. The muscular and neurovascular arrangement, however, is very similar, as are the plantar and palmar upon neuroses. The layout, as we know, is to the intrinsics of the thumb, the great toe and the little finger or little toe, then the long flexors of the next layer, then it's the adductor, either pollicis or haliosis, and then the three palmar or plantar and four dorsal interossei. So there's great similarities in the structuring, layered structure of the hand and the foot. And these, of course, abduct and adduct to the relevant axial digit, as I've said. The lateral plantar nerve and the ulnar nerve are considered for similarity, and I've discussed a bit of that before, as are the median nerve and the medial plantar nerves. And we know the cutaneous and the muscular differences between these. So to recap, on the sensory side, the division is into the skin of the postaxial one and a half digits, that's the lateral plantar and ulnar nerve, and the preaxial three and a half digits, that's the medial plantar or median nerve. The palmar branch of the ulnar nerve and the median nerve are quite separate. The flexor cutaneous supply winds around a bit onto the dorsal surface and it extends a bit more to the middle phalanx on the hand and maybe the nail and the epimechial fold, nail bed in the foot. So there's a little less dorsal um, cutaneous sensation from the ventral side. On the motor side, the median nerve and the medial plantar nerve supply the intrinsics of the first digit, with the medial plantar nerve the first lumbrical and the median nerve typically the radial two lumbricals. Although the lateral plantar nerve and the ulnar nerve divide into superficial and deep branches, there's a little less similarity there. The ulnar nerve, for example, supplies only the palmaris brevis muscle if that's present, and the superficial branch of the lateral plantar nerve tends to supply the flexor digiti minimi brevis and the interossei of the fourth metatarsal space. So a little more muscular supply from the superficial branch of the homologous lateral plantar nerve. The extensor side tendon-wise I think is similar, but the extensor digitorum brevis has its hand counterpart which is really only the extensor indices in the, in the hand, uh, the extensor digitorum brevis of the foot. And this, the extensor indices, I think, is something that we tend to forget, maybe apart from plastic surgeons who use it as a tendon transfer. And there is, of course, only one plantar and, uh, as opposed to two palmar uh, arterial arches, the superficial and deep palmar arch. The venous return laterally and medially I think is similar. The venous system of the foot is actually a pump via the deep interosseous vein perforators. But the superficial veins are pre- and post-axial. Very similarities, as I mentioned before, between the greater saphenous entry into the femoral vein, the short saphenous entry into the popliteal vein. The medial basilic vein in the arm pierces the deep fascia about the mid-arm and um, it runs into the brachial vein in a similar manner. On the lymphatic side, 
superficial lymphatics follow the veins, the deep lymphatics, the arteries, very little travels actually with the short saphenous vein to popliteal nodes, however. That's a slight difference there. The lower limb lymphatics admix with the medial lymphatics, which are draining the lower abdomen and groin, and laterally from the back as well as the perineum. So that's a little far less organised in the inguinal lymph nodes than it is in the axillary lymph nodes. And they pass um, through the fascia to the medial deep inguinal nodes on the medial side of the femoral vein, and that runs across then to the femoral canal and then to the external iliac nodes. We'll go through this in a little bit more detail in the relevant podcast. The main drainage of the superficial group is similar to the kind of lateral or pectoral nodal group in the axilla. The nodes draining deeply to the medial femoral vein are kind of equivalent to the group along the medial axillary vein. The medial superficial inguinal nodal group would be kind of the equivalent of the breast and upper abdominal wall, but the homology kind of stops there. It becomes a little bit more hazy. The lateral superficial group in the groin would be the correspondence perhaps of the deep subscapular group in the arm. The apical group in the upper limb would be the relay equivalent of the femoral canal group in the, in the lower limb, but it, it's, it's difficult to create a full homology. Um, I think we've got a little bit of time, perhaps we can add, therefore, the, uh, a segment on the osteology of the femur. Those were just a review of the kind of similarities or homologous bits, and we'll uh, then move on into the, into the next um, uh, podcast. But I think I'll add a bit on to the femur as we've got some time. Um, if you can get out of femur, uh, you can sort of follow it along. The disposition of the bone, if, if you lay it down, shows a 30-degree torsion of the neck and head with the shaft so that the head faces backwards, and that affects, obviously, its fracture rate and its injury biomechanics and the normal kind of upward thrust of pressure. In women, there's less of an obtuse angle of the neck with the shaft uh, which obviously is related to the width of the female pelvis. You know when you look at the head, obviously, the fovea capitis femoris for the attachment of the ligamentum teres. We want to use all these medical terms. And you expect that the hyaline cartilage extends a little on top of the neck of the femur from the head. It actually allows a degree of superflexion as, as a form of articulation. Um, We'll discuss the hip in another podcast and also the surgical anatomical approaches. Below, of course, this head region and the fovea is the retinacular region. You can see it perforated by multiple small nutrient vessels. That is, capsule covered inferiorly for some distance. The angle of the neck is strengthened internally by the calcar femorale, which is really a flange of compact bone extending from the territory of the lesser trochanter behind the neutral axis. And it is, in effect, really a bone spur that can stand heavy compression and which is there to redistribute load forces across the proximal femur. And that's relevant, obviously, in neck of femur fractures. The neck, as you can see, joins the shaft at the greater trochanter above and the lesser trochanter below, if we're describing it. 
we can clearly see the vascular and fibrotic ridges on the neck, as I've mentioned, of the retinacular region. We'll go through this in a bit more detail in the relevant podcast, but one of the reasons for a vascular necrosis with an intracapsular fracture is the fact that those small trochanteric arteries, a little trochanteric anastomosis around the neck, they're broken. But also, as the capsule is so low, as you can see it, along that intratrochanteric line, that because the fracture is intracapsular, you get a substantial, very tight hemarthrosis, which then goes on to compress and occlude any vessels that are unbroken. And that leads to a higher risk of avascular necrosis of the head. The fact that the fracture is intracapsular is then very important, and that's a, a measure of the way the capsule anatomically runs around the hip joint. Got it? Now, between these two trochanters is, of course, an intertrochanteric line where anteriorly the capsule of the joint attaches, as well as the lower fibres of the iliofemoral ligament, the so-called ligament of Bigelow, which is critical in hip stability and in hip dislocation. More medially is the attachment of the pubofemoral ligament, and we'll discuss this again in another podcast. The other ligament is the ischiofemoral ligament. That's the remaining part, the so-called zonia or zona orbicularis, which is rounder. And at the back um, attaches the so-called intertrochanteric crest. That's the capsular attachment is higher here posteriorly. And the bit below that is then bare bone, for the attachment of the obturator sternus. The greater trochanter projects upwards for attachment of the gluteus medius and the piriformis deeply. Piriformis we'll discuss as a great important landmark muscle. There's a smooth facet for the triple tendon insertion here, that's the obturator internus and the gemelli. And then the trochanteric fossa is evident here for the attachment of the obturator externus. The anterior J-shaped ridge actually attaches the gluteus minimus. And between the greater and lesser trochanters posteriorly is the so-called quadrate tubicles, rather aptly named, which not surprisingly attaches the quadratus femoris. So we're progressively going down these short external rotators as they attach to the back of the hip. The lesser trochanter, we know, of course, receives the psoas major tendon, and the iliacus is inserted more into the front of this tendon, as well as into a bit of the bone area below the trochanter. And that leads down into the shaft area, which posteriorly is dominated by the linear aspera in its middle one-third. The word aspera means just rough, so it's aptly named. The line between the trochanters, the intertrochanteric line, runs medially off as a kind of spiral arc beyond the lesser trochanter, then into the linear aspera. If you wind the femur around, you'll see that that's the case. And that takes off medially as the medial supracondylar ridge as we get lower down, and that goes all the way down to the adductor tubicle on the medial condyle. On the back, below the greater trochanter, is the gluteal tuberosity, or some, some people call it the gluteal crest, which runs laterally into the linear aspera and which continues down as the lateral supracondylar ridge all the way down to the lateral condyle. So if you look at the upper intertrochanteric line medially, that gives origin 
to the vastus medialis muscle. And then if you turn the bone around, the vastus lateralis originates from a very narrow strip from about that gluteal tuberosity down to the lateral lip of the linear aspera and as far as the very upper part of the lateral supracondylar line. And these are relevant because of the approaches for the shaft of the femur, if there has to be an open approach now, not done so much, but it defines how much muscle needs to be stripped off. And I'll come into that a little bit later. A lot of muscle origins are squeezed in here, but it means that the medial part of the bone, the medial part of the femur, is actually bare of muscle. The whole of the front of the bone has an origin, of course, to the vastus intermedius, and there's a separate nearby attachment below that of the articularis genu. So to reiterate, the front is dominated by the vastus intermedius. There's a slip of articularis genu below and a strip medially of the vastus medialis. If we're still on the front, we'll see the lateral attachment over the greater trochanter of gluteus minimus and below that, a little tiny bit of vastus lateralis. Now, if we turn the femur around to look at the back, here's where it becomes a little bit complicated. We can see that poking out of the trochanteric fascia in the obturator externus, we see the psoas and iliacus attaching to the back of the lesser trochanter, and we see the quadratus femoris, as I've mentioned, and a little vastus lateralis attachment. But squeezed alongside the vastus is then the gluteus maximus. If you go further in, we have the adductor brevis extending to about the mid-shaft or a little bit lower. Immediately still is a short attachment for the adductor longus. And between these extending inferiorly is then the adductor magnus with its upper edge just below the quadratus femoris. Some books like Cunningham, for example, suggest that its origin is not quite as high as that. Uh, which uh, uh, the higher origin is suggested more by last. So it can vary a little bit exactly how high the origin of adductor magnus goes. That's relevant also for people who've got um, uh, hamstring tears, which seems to be increasingly common in our sports. There's a patchy attachment right down as far, uh, I'm talking about the adductor magnus now, as the adductor tubercle and the medial supracondylar line, and it kind of leaves a gap, as we know, in the adductor canal for the femoral vessels to become the popliteal vessels. Below that lesser trochanter area, of course, is the attachment of pectineus. The short-headed biceps is the only other muscle that has to take origin. It's crowded against the space between the vastus lateralis and the adductor magnus. And um, this kind of shows the sciatic or ischiatic and the obturator adductor overlap. And that means that the biceps takes origin from about the full length of the linear aspera. The adductor brevis is into the upper part, about the upper third or so of the linear behind the pectineus. And then the adductor longus into the lower two-thirds of the linear. That's the easier way to remember it. And that means that the anterior and posterior quarter of the shaft of the femur on both sides, that's at the front and the back, are bare. So it's worth looking at uh, this particular area um, and looking at the uh, muscle attachments. You may have a relevant anatomy book for that. Cunningham is pretty good. And kind of trace it out. There are some good femurs that have got the attachments as well. But see the difference between the adductor brevis and longus 
and you'll see also how the biceps femoris is laterally interposed against those and then take the higher or lower origin of the adductor magnus going down to the adductor tubercle and you'll see how these take their attachments. As we get below um, that shaft area um, we get to the condyles and behind of course is the intercondylar notch in front is the trochlear surface of the patella and the trochlear as you can see is heaped up laterally that's there to stabilize the arrangement of the patella so that there isn't lateral patella dislocation. One of the treatments um, of these patella alta, for example, a flat patella which dislocates, is to build up the normal lateral part of the trochlea through a trochleoplasty. We'll go through those areas a little bit later, but that's the anatomical, sim one of the simplest aspects of the anatomical reason why the patella dislocates laterally, but why it's also prevented from dislocating laterally by that heaped up part of the trochlea. As we're going back to the um, uh, condylar region, the anterior cruciate, uh, I'll go into more detail obviously at the appropriate podcast, but that's attached to the back of the lateral condyle and the posterior cruciate by definition far forwards onto the medial condyle. And that's how the cruciates are then so labelled. Think of it as posterior medial anterior lateral or L. Once you remember anterior lateral, you can then uh, remember the rest of it. On the back of the medial condyle is the attachment of the medial head of gastric nemius over a fairly broad origin. The lateral condyle has three smooth pits posteriorly, the upper one for the lateral head of gastric nemius, a smaller origin of that than the medial head, and then there's a small pit above that for the plantaris at the very lower end of the supracondylar line, and a little pit in between for the fibular collateral ligament. The lower pit attaches also part of the popliteus tendon laterally. So the femur is superficial at its top and bottom, with the diaphysis surrounded by quite a lot of muscle in the way we've described it. And the commonest surgical approach is really the posterolateral approach if the entire femur is to be exposed, and it's an open exposure. But the value here is that the quadriceps is not really violated around the lateral intermuscular septum. And if you can avoid that, there's no real risk then of muscular adhesions and functional impairment that occurs outside of that. There is a posteromedial approach, um, and uh, that may be used where there may need to be, a, for example, a vascular exposure. For example, in a more complex trauma, uh, perhaps in a tumour resection or as part of more complicated reconstructive surgery. There is a trend also towards a true lateral approach where percutaneous technology is being used for fracture fixation using minimally invasive means. And here the idea is of minimally invasive plate osteosynthesis that's gained popularity. And that remote approach preserves the fracture hematoma and the um, uh, bone fragment uh, blood supply. Um, finally, I'd like to talk a, just a second or so about ossification before we finish. Of course, the femur is in chondral ossification with a diaphyseal centre at about eight weeks and a lower end centre, which occurs as a sign, it's actually a feature of fetal maturity. 
Um, the lower end is the growing end. The distal epiphysis fuses at skeletal maturity, so that's pretty easy to remember. And there's a head centre at one year. There's a centre in the greater trochanter at about three and in the lesser trochanter around 12 or even early puberty. And that kind of collection of upper epiphyses fuses with the shaft typically by about 18 or so. So in summary, there are actually five vesific centres, the shaft, the femoral head, the distal end of the femur, the greater trochanter, the lesser trochanter. And the fusion of the head with the diaphysis is a good couple of years earlier, generally in girls, than it is in boys. Okay, that's it. And we'll move on in the next podcast to discuss the lower limb fascia a little and the femoral triangle, the saphenofemoral junction, some of the surgical anatomy of those things as well. Um, uh, some of that is uh, sometimes missing a little bit from the surgical anatomy tutorial, so I do want to go through some of that. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.